to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Today on the program, our guest is Great Salt Lake Commissioner, Great Salt Lake Strike Team Co-Chair Brian Steed. The strike team has released its Great Salt Lake Data and Insights Summary, prepared for the 2024 Utah Legislature. Brian Steed also serves as Executive Director of the USU Janet Quinney Lawson Institute of Land, Water, and Air, says restoring Great Salt Lake to health will not be one year, one policy, one constituency solution. Rather, a coordinated data-driven approach will be necessary so decision makers can evaluate trade-offs and balance competing interests. So we're going to talk about this on, uh, on the program today. Brian Steed, thanks for coming back in. Thank you so much for having me, Tom. It's always a pleasure to be here. Appreciate these visits. Uh, important, uh, of course. Um, uh, first of all, what, what is your role as Great Salt Lake Commissioner? So uh, during last year's legislative session, uh, they passed a bill called HB 491. Uh, and that bill uh, set up a new role in the state called the Great Salt Lake Commissioner. Essentially, the, the role of the commissioner is to serve as the quarterback for the various state agencies that are working on Great Salt Lake issues. There are many agencies that have been on or that have had ongoing efforts on Great Salt Lake over some time. So, for instance, the Division of Forestry, Fire, and State Lands has been tasked to manage that sovereign lands, the, the land that's under that ordinary high water mark of the Great Salt Lake. Other state agencies are tasked to, to work on the water issues specifically. There are other state agencies, the Division of Wildlife Resources, that are tasked that this task to work with wildlife issues. And really, the commissioner role is to be at the center of all that to make sure that we are all pulling in the same direction when it comes to work on this really important resource, the Great Salt Lake. Uh, tell me about the Great Salt Lake Strike Team. That's who put together this report, right? Exactly. So uh, a little over uh, a year ago, uh, in a conversation with colleagues at the University of Utah, uh, we really decided there was a tremendous need to get a data source for the various research that's being done on the Great Salt Lake. So there is a and a go-to authoritative source on where we are in terms of the science of the lake. And that was the origin of the strike team. It's a combination of the University of Utah, Utah State University, as well as uh, some of the, the key state agencies, that so the Department of Natural Resources, the Department of Environmental Quality, and the Utah Department of Agriculture and Food. We get together frequently to talk about the lake, to talk about the science on the lake, and to talk about some of the options we have in front of us on the lake. And so the work has been really interestingly a labor of love for many of these researchers. I have to shout out to, to Utah State researchers at the Utah State Water Lab, as well as uh, people in the Quinney College of Natural Resources and other places on campus that have been really integral, people like um, David Tarbotten and uh, Joanna Anderwada and Sarah Knoll and Beth Nielsen and other researchers here at Utah State that have really dedicated hours of, of well, h hundreds of hours at this point of their time uh, to finding where we are on the lake as well as to, to looking for solutions on the lake. Uh, before we dive in, and I, I was talking with you uh, about this uh, just before we went on the art, as I was going through this report, uh, it struck me in a way I, I ha hadn't before. Um, just the, the small margins here, which is ironic to say because it's, it's huge numbers of acre feet and uh, of water, et cetera. Uh, but, but the, I guess what scientists have come up with is the, the ideal level, what we want to get to is 4,198. 
Yep. And let, uh, let's be clear about that. That's uh, feet above sea level. Feet above sea level, yes. Not, not the depth of the lake. The lake itself is quite shallow. Yes. And so th- we, we are managing on that understanding of where the level of the lake is on feet above sea level. Very good point. Very good point. And that helps uh, you to answer my question, uh, which is um, we're trying to get right now we're at, what, 4192? Two or something. Forty-one ninety-three as of this 4193 morning. Forty-one ninety-three, which is, is that's great. That's great. So to get up there, that that's five feet. Correct, and, but, and, that, and all this angst for five feet. <laughs> but it, but it, you know, five feet is it, it, that's simplifying it uh, ridiculously. I think. Yeah, I would say this: uh, the lake itself is is complicated because it is such a large flat lake. So as you have one foot of elevation, there's a tremendous amount of size the lake grows yes. uh, in, in dia- height and diameter, right? It's our height, height and width. And so what happens then, so every foot, it's a, a bunch more surface area that's covered. And this is actually shown as you see the lake fall over time through satellite imagery or whatever else, even one foot of, of, of the lake loss is a tremendous amount of acreage left uncovered by the lake itself. And so when you're looking at the different ecosystems that rely on this, right, and I would say, better said, the various things that are around the perimeter of the lake, one foot of, of lake is, is a tremendous amount of acres of exposed, or I would say square miles of exposed, um, of exposed lake bed. And so if we're talking about the things that we're concerned about here, so whether that's habitat for, for animals or whether we're concerned about the dust effects, one foot makes a big deal or makes mm-hmm. makes a big difference. And and so trying to get that five feet, it's not a small task because it do, it's a tremendous amount of water just based on that growth and expansion of the lake itself. Maybe we could dive right in here. I want to want to get to the, you know, the, the points in your executive summary. Also lessons. You have a, a, a page of lessons learned in this past year. But since I brought it up here, uh, what I'm looking at is a, is a chart, projected elevation for varying conservation strategies. Uh, so maybe we could start with aggressive conservation, which which sounds great, but you have levels for highly aggressive and extremely aggressive. So aggressive conservation would get us to that level, uh, forty one ninety eight, uh, in in thirty years. Correct. And so, in my dual hat capacity as both the Great Salt Lake Commissioner as well as the Great Salt Lake Strike Team Chair. This is actually what we've identified as the preferred alternative. And, and I know 30 years sounds like a long time, but when we're talking about this level of conservation, that still requires on an average year 471,000 acre feet of water, which is a lot of water. And so uh, we really have to be mindful that aggressive conservation is going to be, it's, it's hard to do. And that, that means it's on average. So on a year like this year or a year like last year, we're actually well above that average when we have that water flowing in. That's great news. But it also means we have work ahead of us. And and really, Tom, this is a, a choose your own adventure, right? Uh, we have different options in front of us. Those extreme conservation, right, if we were to say much more aggressive conservation, we can get the lake to a higher level in a shorter number of years. But uh, in terms of that policy consideration, we're not sure how amenable people are going to be to that level of conservation over those shorter time frames. And so that's why we've opted for that longer time frame to get us there uh, over the 30 years. So wet year like last year, uh, this year is shaping up to be fairly wet. Uh, conservation needed? Are we just going to hit that, that those lake inflows that we need? So oddly enough, 
I think it's even more needed on these years yeah. because uh, this is the type of year that we're able to deliver more water. If we're talking drought years, drought years themselves, people have this tendency to say, really, you know, we've got to we've got to use our water because otherwise everything we have is going to die. And a year like this year, we're going to have really high soil moisture content, it looks like, which is great. And that's going to be followed by an above average water year, which means we'll have higher runoffs. And if we can get more of that runoff to the lake, the lake is in a much better spot. And that means that that conservation efforts for those really dry years that we know are coming will be less onerous. Mm. Um, so I'm looking at the, this chart. Uh, so for contemporary average inflows with no conservation, would your estimating in, in 30 years uh, get us up to 41, about 94 yeah. So, you know, a couple of feet more than we are today. Uh, what's what's so wrong with that? With no conservation at all. So so let's be clear on what that that means. Uh, we have been in this extraordinary number of years to where we've had very dry conditions. I wish I had a crystal ball. This is assuming that we're going back to normal, whatever normal is now. Uh, and, and if we went back to normal, sure, we would get to forty one ninety four. Potentially, but that doesn't necessarily uh, gel with with additional growth, nor does it uh, deal with land uses that we're taking into effect. So I think that, in truth, and and, and then let's talk about the level itself of forty one ninety four. That still is in an area that we're going to have dust events. We're still going to have ecosystem consequences as a result of those lower lake levels. I mean, the lake since. Uh, since uh, Europeans started to measure uh, when they got here in 1847, uh, really, we're seeing the lake probably around 4,200 4, feet above sea level. And so that is kind of where average would have been. We're trying to get back up to healthy levels, right, which is still uh, a ways away. And, and we would still be four feet down, and that's not a great place to be. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then you have uh, an estimate 30 years out with drought inflows with no conservation. Uh, that you estimate we'd, we would sink to uh, 4184. Uh, and let's be clear on that as well. We have seen more drought years than not yeah. in the recent past. And if you look at uh, climate change models going forward, we would fully anticipate having sometimes more wet years, but then more evaporative loss off the lake. Uh, let's say we have a string of bad years like we've had, you know, over the last 20, if that's the case, we really do drop down to truly scary levels to where we're going to see really dire consequences for the people that live around the lake. Yeah. So that level, that would be, that would be pretty disastrous. It it would be pretty disastrous. I mean, you're going to have much, much more of the lake bed exposed. You're going to have salinity levels on the south arm that become really problematic for the species that rely on that salinity level. So that's brine shrimp and brine flies both of which are incredibly important food source for the 12 million migratory birds that pass through per year. And also, when you look at those adjacent wetlands around the lake that are really just key to, to water uh, along uh, the Wasatch Front because they provide this filtration system, that's all in peril, as well as a smaller lake pr- produces less, uh, less lake effect snow Less lake effects snow means more runoff overall, and we have this negative cycle. We would just prefer not to see that. And then yeah. one more thing on the dust. Mm. We know that dust coming off the lake um, is quite problematic. Uh, it, it pushes us into non-attainment of 
of particulate matters, 2.5 microns as well as 10 microns, which are both regulated by the Clean Air Act. And that's something that we have actually taken pride in as a state in improving our air quality. This has the, the opportunity and maybe the, the potential to erode away some of those gains. And that's scary for a lot of us. And then in addition to that, if the lake is then more exposed, more lake bed is, is exposed because of a smaller lake, we see more of those dust events and that dust goes everywhere, including onto snowpack, which means that there is this, this perverse effect. When, when dust ends up, ends up on snow, that dust ends up having uh, heat attraction effects and the snow melts more quickly. There's a recent study that shows at Alta Ski Resort, for instance, in 2022, you had snowpack melting a full two weeks before it normally would have, just based on dust off Great Salt Lake. We anticipate that becoming even greater uh, if there's more dust coming off the lake. Mm. Uh, I forget, what was the what was the level we hit uh, three or four years ago, the, the, I guess the lowest so about recorded? F- 4189. 4189. So so this this doomsday scenario uh, drought conditions no conservation would be lower than that. No much much lower than yeah, that. Yeah. And and we saw tremendously bad things happening. I mean I can say that we were terrified because we saw salinity levels peak and we really did see the loss of brine flies um, almost the entirety of the of the shore of the Great Salt Lake you didn't see brine flies reproducing uh, and then we saw on brine shrimp also stopping reproduction. And uh, that's a scary scenario. And that's not to say that they wouldn't come back at some point, but it means that in the short term when they're not there, you're going to have catastrophic consequences for the various species that rely on them as their source of groceries, essentially. Yeah, yeah it just, uh, you know, it's, it's just being pressed upon me that the the, the narrow levels we have, right? The lo- lo- narrow levels of margins for error. Correct. And and the need for stewardship because the lake is so shallow. That that's absolutely yeah. right, and uh, and so that's why we're taking it quite seriously, and that's why we're trying to be as aggressive as we can be. Um, I, I'm trying to remember what uh, in some places what 12 feet, 15 feet. It, it, it is a very shallow lake. It is. I mean, I think the deepest part it's somewhere um, a little more than 30 feet deep, but that's the exception, not the rule. Mm-hmm. And so it is a very shallow lake uh, for almost the entirety of it. And if you ever spend any time on the lake. It's actually kind of interesting because there are bioherms, these kind of reef life structures out in the lake, which, I mean, it's, it's a really fascinating place to spend time. Uh, and, and yeah, you have to watch for those because the lake is so shallow. And that's another kind of one of those cascading downward events because as the lake gets more shallow, you have more, more of those structures exposed. They dry out. You lose the ecological vitality there. And it's a problem. Yeah. Uh, so I want to go back to uh, the, the strike team's preferred, uh, I guess, plan or uh, scenario. Um, aggressive conservation uh, would uh, would fill up t- the lake up to the preferred level, forty one ninety eight over thirty years. What does that look like for 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 the average, you know, for you and me, for in our households? Uh, so what what is what does that look like? So in our households, it means more aggressive conservation. And interestingly, we know where that conservation should occur. If you are using water inside your house and that water ends up in a pipe, most of that water will eventually end up in the Great Salt Lake. However, if you're using that on your lawns, most of that water will not end up in the Great Salt Lake, but rather will be used by just the biological processes of of your lawns or gardens. So what we would hope to see, people be more conscious of how they're using water. And 
in the household, we really are focused on external use, right? What we're doing outside for our lawns and gardens. And so being more aggressive on the type of, of landscaping we have, as well as um, how we apply water, both are really key. Interestingly, if you look at studies that we've done here at Utah State through Center for um, Water Efficient Landscaping and other places, you actually have, if you study it, people generally apply too much water on their grass regardless. Uh, and so even cutting that back to a normal amount would have a substantial water savings. And then if you do additional steps, say removing functionless turf, I think that's another thing that people uh, could do. Um, for instance, at my house, I have a park strip that I'll be, um, I'm trying to get out. Uh, and that's the la- strip of land between the sidewalk and the road that I can't seem to water correctly. I mean, I, I end up watering the pavement on either side. And uh, we're going to put it in a drip system and, and get that taken care of. It's just those types of changes done not only on the individual basis, but those individual then bases when they're collectivized make a huge, huge benefit for the lake. Uh, does this count for growth, this, this scenario? So so I think it has to account for growth. I don't think we're going to, to – I don't think we're going to put up a – a wall around the state and say, stay out. Uh, most of our growth happens because people have kids and they want to stay here. Uh, and then there is a fair amount of in-migration into the state because people find it to be a lovely place to live. So we're going to have to account for that growth. How we grow then matters. And we can, we can do that in a way that is by far more water sensitive than what we have been. There was a time in this state when people would have thought, it's just normal to put in, you know, this moat of Kentucky bluegrass around your property, and that was landscaping. And sometimes those lots were, you know, half acre lots or a quarter acre lots. That's probably not going to be the norm. Land prices are just too high, and so to accommodate uh, th- that type of growth, smaller lots, and then what we do with those lots, I think, is going to be key as well. And, and again, if we can plan in not to have that that really thirsty uh, strip of land, but rather have a more water conscious strip of land. There's lots of beautiful options. And I'm not even saying no grass. What I'm saying is the type of use the type of grass that is going to be more water conscious and minimize what is the functionless turf. And there is a fair amount of that out there. And so if we were able to build that into our growth, we really might, or what we're hoping to do is get closer to what we call water neutral growth, which means we grow, but our water footprint doesn't expand. Mm-hmm. Before we go to break, and, and uh, later in the hour, I want to talk about agriculture, right, industry, mm-hmm. uh, some other factors here. Uh, but I, I'm curious about uh, the, these more aggressive scenarios, uh, highly aggressive or extremely aggressive. So under, under a highly aggressive scenario, we'd hit that target uh, elevation in 10 years, extremely aggressive in five years. What would those look like? They look uh, by far more draconian in terms of uh, mandates to not water your lawn. Uh, as well as a fair amount of aggressive uh, restrictions on on agriculture. I just don't think that they're politically sustainable right now, given our current conditions. Uh, and if that's the case, I think that we have to, to pivot towards what is uh, socially sustainable. And in this case, I think that's going to be more of that that 30-year time horizon. So uh, if we're looking at the, the strike team's preferred scenario, um, conservation, aggressive conservation, uh, fill that lake up from the current, what, 4193 uh, to 4198 over 30 years. Looking at that curve in, a, in about 
five years we're up to 95 10 years up to about 90 you know seven or something is that going to avert the problems that you know we had massive problems when we hit that historic low now thankfully some wet years have got us a little bit higher but not at the ideal level. So the good news is that any amount of water we put on the lake from where we are up into those healthy levels gets us closer to healthy. And what I mean by that is the lake, like I said, was a big flat lake. You put one foot of water on, the lake's footprint expands quite substantially. One more foot after that. And so when you get up to 4195, we actually enter the next, what what the Division of Forestry, Fire, and State Lands identified as kind of good, better, best. Uh, it, it's a better scenario, right? It's a better scenario for salinity. It's a better scenario for dust at 4195. And if we get above 4195, 96, 97, it's even better still. So that's something that I think all Utahns should take heart in, that we can actually get to better in much shorter time frames than that, that 30-year window. And I guess it, it's well to point out again that we've, we've been helped last year and this year, right? Uh, Mother Nature's not always going to help us that way. That's correct. And I think yeah. that's something that we just have to be mindful of. Yeah. Oh, let's take a break. We'll come back and talk much more about uh, this uh, report. Uh, it's the Great Salt Lake Data and Insights Summary prepared for the 2024 Utah Legislature. We're talking with Great Salt Lake Commissioner uh, Brian Steed. He's also co-chair of the Great Salt Lake Strike Team, which produced this report. And he serves as executive director of the USU Janet Quinney Lawson Institute of Land, Water, and Air. We'll have more following this. Thanks for joining us for Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams, talking about the Great Salt Lake. And uh, we're talking with Brian Steed. He is Great Salt Lake Commissioner. He's also uh, co-chair of the Great Salt Lake Strike Team. That uh, team has uh, put together, uh, I guess, the second annual uh, Great Salt Lake Data and Insights Summary. So, Brian Seed, uh, every year you're anticipating p- preparing one of these for the legislature? That's correct. Okay. And we're uh, talking about this. Uh, Brian Steed also serves as executive director of the USU Janet Quinney Lawson Institute of Land, Water, and Air. So, referring to this uh, report, this summary, uh, you have uh, lessons learned in 2023 looking back. Uh, the first one no single solution is a cure for the lake. I think that's right. I mean, I think there's been a lot of effort put on finding the silver bullet. And uh, we have really sought for what that silver bullet might look like. In truth, there is no silver bullet. There may be something more akin to silver buckshot to where there's lots of different things we need to do simultaneously. I mean, And just as a for instance to this, we have to worry about conservation, but we also have to worry about salinity levels on the lake. Getting more water to the lake helps with that, but it's not necessarily the single cure to worrying about those salinity levels on the south arm. So we have to take both those things at the same time and and make sure that we're making those policy recommendations and those policy efforts that really make sense. I want to, before we go into the others, I want to talk about the two arms of the lake. Mm-hmm. Um, north arm is, is more salty. Mm-hmm. That's because the causeway, yeah, the so, railroad causeway, right? So in the 1950s, the Union Pacific Railway, which which used to go around the lake, right? In the turn of the century, they put in a trestle bridge across the lake. Wood bridge, uh, salt water, not a great fit when you're running locomotives over the top of it. So they, in the 1950s, decided, well, we're going to put in a more permanent structure, and they built a causeway across the lake. 
that wasn't intended to be a barrier between both sides of the lake. It's in fact been a barrier on both sides of the lake. And what you've seen since the 1950s is different lake levels on the north arm and south arm, as well as different salinity levels. And that's maybe more key. The north arm, because it has less water flowing into it as fresh water, has become much more saline over the years. And really since the 1960s, you haven't seen the same degree of biological functionality as we see on, on the south arm. It's just been too salty. And what I, what I mean by that is that really brine shrimp, brine flies, and even the bird species that uh, come to, to inhabit the lake really will avoid the north arm because it's just too salty. They can't thrive there. The only thing that really does live well there are things called halophiles, which are microorganisms that love salt, and they actually occasionally turn the lake, that side of the lake, kind of the color of pink lemonade, which is interesting to see, but but ultimately not the most biologically um, biologically intact system. And so we really are concerned about that south arm because that's where the salinity is, uh, where, where the salinity is in that right spot to where we have by far better ecosystem outcomes. Um, so I think last year the berm was raised, mm-hmm. right? The berm is, is kind of a gate, if you will, a, kind of a uh, where, the, where the water transfers between the two arms. Is yeah, that so that so the, it's it's complicated? Uh, some years ago they realized that 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 causeway, which was you know the dividing point between the north arm and south arm, there wasn't sufficient water exchange between the two, and so they breached that causeway for a number of, of um, and I can't remember the exact distance, but it's a, it's a relatively sizable breach. Uh, they breached that causeway, and then and then we're, we were monitoring water flowing across that. At the end of 2022, we decided to say, well, we are concerned about the salinity levels on the south arm. We know we can bring salinity levels on the south arm down if we, uh, if we actually have more fresh water mixing in. And so there was this decision to raise a berm in that breach. And that berm itself uh, was meant to be an adaptive management tool to where you keep more water in the south arm. As you keep more water in the south arm, more of that fresh water mixes with the salty water and brings overall salinity levels down. That was a great experiment, right? But one of the unintended consequences, which actually is one of the other lessons of the strike team report is trade-offs. One of the unintended consequences of that is we had this huge differential in height between the south arm and the north arm to where the south arm went up five and a half feet last year. Or the south arm went up five and a half feet. The north arm went up almost nothing last year. And so there was this kind of waterfall coming uh, over that, that berm. It actually eroded most of the berm away throughout the year. Uh, but ultimately, that kind of differential between the north arm and south arm is probably not super healthy either. And so trying to, to minimize that is something that now we're trying to consider. How do we manage the salinity on the south arm as well as making sure that we're not cutting off the north arm from having sufficient water so it can also rise? So that's something that we're, we're working on. And so that's the type of decision making. But that's that's the, the exchange between those two. The trade-off, yeah. Mm-hmm. So the south arm did rise. Did the north arm rise as well? The north arm came up uh, less than a foot. Okay, okay. And we are now seeing because of the erosion – uh, of that berm, and we'll probably see a little more of that berm removed uh, as we head into runoff to, to remove that differential. Of, of So we will see that north arm continue to rise a little. Um, so, And we actually have seen some of that over the last few months, but it's still a fair uh, ways away from where that equalization rate would be between yeah. the north arm and south arm. Is the north arm recoverable? 
Is, is, it, is it gone in terms of salinity? It's a good question, and I get that question all the time. Uh, I will say that it's been so salty for so long, uh, there is a tremendous amount of salt buildup there. And so it does take all the more water uh, to get there. From a policy decision, we really want to make sure that the south arm doesn't repeat where the north arm is now. And so we really are going to focus on making sure the south arm maintains its biological functionality. We are concerned about the north arm, though, for a variety of reasons. Ultimately, if I were to say in my dreams, yes, I would love to restore the, the north arm as well. But that's going to take a lot of years just mm -hmm. based on the high amount of salt. One thing as well, just to be aware of, though, the dropping the dropping level of the north arm has had some biological implications this year. And I think you and I talked about this earlier where you have Gunnison Island, which has been this right. historical you know, you know, uh, nesting spot for uh, American white pelicans. Uh, that that we was, was kind of kept predators at bay. There was no nothing for them to eat there, but they would fly out there just for the protection of of this isolated island. Well, that island now has a land bridge, and predators are coming across. In fact, I was out on Gunnison Island earlier this year, and it's amazing uh, how many dead birds are around. But as well, we saw uh, we saw predators, right? And I don't know if it was a it was a fox or a coyote, but we certainly saw it. And then there's, there's there is um, wildlife cams up. Uh, we pulled the the cards from those wildlife cams, and sure enough, there is a coyote right there. And the and that that's something that really is going to cause that loss of that of that nesting spot because it's no longer safe for those birds. Mm -hmm. And that's something that we just have to be concerned about. Those are the type of things that we are hoping to avoid. Yeah. Yeah. One more question about the North Arm. Uh, if we're able to hit that ideal target of 4198, would that help the North Arm? Or Absolutely. Do we need more than No, it, okay. would, it would bring salinity levels down okay. substantially. Mm -hmm. It would also help with the dust around the North Arm. Yeah. Okay. It doesn't probably fix the salinity levels totally because they're just so high. Yeah. Right now, the, the North Arm is at saturation point, which means that just so much more fresh water needs to mix there. Yeah. To make it happen. You'd probably have to take out the causeway? Probably have to take out the causeway, and, yeah. and right now that's probably ill-advised, mm -hmm. uh, simply because we would love to keep that saltiness north and, and, and manage ah, the saltiness on right. the south arm effectively. If we were to immediately take out that causeway, we would have mixing, and we would have salinity conditions higher than, than what yeah. those, those you know, biological entities need. So how are we doing with salinity in the south arm at this point, So the current level? Much better. Mm -hmm. uh, we were up in into the levels of like 185 grams per liter. Uh, that mixing, that experiment where we raised the berm and mixed more fresh water has been tremendously successful in bringing those down to like 140, 145 grams per liter. And that's, um, that's actually a much more healthy spot than uh, where we, we were. Yeah. Uh, just a, a kind of a random question. It, it doesn't apply exactly what we were talking about. Do you, uh, as as you go around talking about, as, as you roll as a Great Salt Lake Commissioner, do you do you ever encounter, I don't know, opposition or skepticism from people in Southern Utah all the time? Hey, it, it's it, it Great Salt Lake is a Northern Utah thing. <laughs> well, why, why should I be worried about this? Right. So it's interesting. You, you hear a lot of that sentiment, especially uh, you know at this time of year, we're we're in the middle of our legislative session, and you hear. You know, those representatives from those areas of the state say people have to remember that not all the water of the state drains into the Great Salt Lake. Yeah. Uh, I heard something very similar when I was over in the Uinta Basin earlier this year talking at a water conference. And I think that's a, it's a healthy reminder. 
That being said, I think that there are lessons that we can jointly learn, regardless of whatever watershed you're in. If you're on on that Uinta side, your water is being then drained into the Colorado River drainage. Mm-hmm. That Colorado River drainage is experiencing very similar problems to right. what we're seeing on the Great Salt Lake with just a lack of water. And then when you look at places like, you know, Fillmore or other areas in central Utah, that's on the severe drainage, and the severe drainage has been one of the more litigated uh, watersheds. Conservation, the tools that we're learning uh, to use on the Great Salt Lake certainly can have that applicability. So while, yes, it's not all connected, there are very real connections from the policy outcomes that we can all learn. Uh, yeah, wherever you are, you're going to have water problems if you're in the in the West in Utah, uh, for example. Um, I want to talk specifically about Cache Valley. Um, you know, one concern is that, uh, you know, the, the old adage that uh, water flows to money, right? Uh, water flows to population. Mm-hmm. Um, the the uh, Wasatch Front uh, continues to grow. Perhaps they're going to want Bear River water. There, you know, there's there's always dreams of a talks of dams on the on the Bear River. So I, I think those those conversations are still ongoing. Uh, if you look at uh, state water policy right now, there is a Bear River Development Act that envisions larger reservoirs within the Bear River drainage. Uh, as the Great Salt Lake Commissioner, uh, that's something that gives me, um, you know, pause that we need to evaluate what the effects of those of those projects will be on the Great Salt Lake because I mean, one of the, the direct trade-offs we have is we know that we need water to thrive here in the West. We know that we as humans strive for that water security. And the best way we've we found to find that water security is by building reservoirs. But we're also finding that that water security through increased reservoirs may have a direct trade-off with the amount of water directly reaching the lake. And so that's something we just have to be mindful of in ways that we haven't been in the past. So this past year, for instance, we had this phenomenal uh, runoff year, best water year in, in recorded history. Uh, but we didn't see that same runoff into the Great Salt Lake because all of our reservoirs along the Wasatch Front uh, were relatively low and we chose to refill those reservoirs. As someone that drinks water, I think that's a great thing. Mm-hmm. But as someone who manages the Great Salt Lake, we have to worry about both those those sides. And so just a fun factoid, we, we stored 1.6 million acres of, of water or acre feet of water in, in our reservoirs this year. That's, I mean, for a water security standpoint, that's great news from a great Salt Lake standpoint. That's 1.6 million acre feet of water that didn't reach its, its final destination in the great Salt Lake. So that's something we just have to, to work out. One of those trade-offs, I guess. And that takes us to uh, a key point, uh, not only in your report as a whole, but lessons learned, conserved water must make it to the great Salt Lake. I think, right. I think that's really It's important. one thing to conserve it, but we need to shepherd this water all the way to the lake. That's how right. Do we, how do we do that? So it's, it's something that we're currently working on. In fact, there's active legislation this year. Uh, over the past few years, we've put tremendous resources, state resources, towards uh, promoting conservation, both in the municipal and industrial sector, as well as in the agricultural sector. In the municipal and industrial, we have have put in a huge effort to make sure that people get secondary water meters installed on on that water that's being de- not not treated water but the water that's being delivered for your outdoor water use 
Much of that statewide has not been metered ever. Uh, we decided that's really important. We put a bunch of that, of that money in place to do that. So that's on the municipal side and the industrial side. On the ag side, we've put million, hundreds of millions of dollars. Uh, I think the total sum is, is over $270 million into, into what they call agricultural optimization to make sure that we're using the best technologies that use the less water uh, so that you're able to have vibrant agriculture using less water. Both those efforts, I think, are commendable. But now we need to do the next step to say, how do we make sure that that saved water then makes its way to the lake? And those are, those are maybe a little trickier, but not impossible. And so this year we're seeing SB18, which is really looking on that agricultural side, what you can do with saved water from, from those agricultural optimization projects and how you quantify it, uh, what that looks like in terms of law. Uh, in, for those water rights, and and I think that we're making progress on that front. Similarly, we have actually already seen some benefits of this because if you have those additional conservation amounts, you actually do have fuller reservoirs. Those fuller reservoirs then will spill more in a year like this, and so we're seeing the benefits of that even now, but we have to be even more aggressive, I think, going forward to make sure that when we save water in point A, that we can actually deliver water to point B. Mm. Are there any other pieces of legislation that you got your eye on? So there's there's a variety of pieces of legislation that we could go through. Uh, you know, I think that uh, the ones that are interesting to me, HB 11 is a, a bill that's trying to identify how we as a state can be a leader from our state places on on this idea of functionless turf. And so it really says you can only have 20 percent uh, turf around a state building. Uh, and I think that would be a good way to lead by example. Uh, we have uh, SB 196, which is uh, planning for what we do on wet water years like this, where we have a lot of water, how we can get more of that water to the lake. Uh, we have HB 453, which is dealing with the mineral companies on the lake and how uh, we quantify how much water they should get on a dry year. And that's something that um, is, is very much in process right now. Uh, and then uh, there is actually another bill on SB 125 sponsored by Senator Hinkins. He's concerned about the number of connections uh, on these secondary meters. He would like very much there to be a, an exemption for, for smaller systems. Uh, but there's also this trade-off, and, and he's been asked now to exempt from from those uh, exemption requirements, certain areas, we're asking for him to take a special look at the Great Salt Lake watershed and make sure we're doing the right thing uh, when it comes to those connections, because we really do have to worry about how much water we're saving. Mm. Very interesting, Bill. I don't know where this is. I know it passed out of committee, uh, Representative Brooks, uh, HB 249, which would deny person legal personhood yeah. to any body of water, including the Great Salt Lake. Um, uh, uh, what do you think about that one? So uh, I'm going to put my lawyer hat on yeah. and say... Uh, I don't know. Uh, I, I, I would say, no, it has been a trend to try to get uh, personhood established for different natural systems. Uh, we've seen this in Latin America. Uh, we've seen this in other parts of the state, Colorado, or other parts of the nation, excuse me. Colorado last uh, a couple months ago is, is looking at this on uh, in an area near Boulder for, for I'm sorry, near Denver uh, on, on a creek named Boulder Creek. And it's something I think that's been has been uh, tried other places. I do think it creates its own set of legal complications when you're looking at what that is and who effectively then speaks on behalf of 
of the lake. Um, I would argue that we have been pretty aggressive in setting up things like the commissioner's office and as well as a bunch of other water conservation that people are advocating on behalf of the lake. Uh, and so I don't, I don't know. I think that it's, it'll be interesting. I think it's a unique legal theory and, uh, it's apparently caught the attention of, of representative Brooks and we'll see how, where it goes from here. Yeah. Uh, one more thing on the, specifically on the legislature before we take a brief break. Um, Representative Bluen's bill, I think last year failed, which would have set codified a uh, ideal level yeah. or, or a, a target level for the for the lake. Uh, would you like to see that, or is that necessary? I don't. I don't think it's necessary at this point. I mean, mm. part of my role as the Great Salt Lake Commissioner uh, is to set state policy, and as our and we just came out in um, January fifteenth with our state policy. We call it the State Strategic Plan. That state. State strategic plan does set 4198 as the level uh, that the state is achieving or the state is aiming to achieve. And so that's our goal. Uh, and that's the target level we're, we're shooting for. And so I think that we've accomplished through through the roles of the commissioner the same thing that Senator Bluen's bill was attempting to do. Uh, yeah, I think I downgraded him too, Representative. So thank you yeah. for for <laughs> upgrading him back. Well, I, and I, I've stuck my foot in it there as well. <laughs> I valued senators higher than representatives. And, and I know enough not to comment. So. <laughs> You'll leave me hanging by myself. Uh, anyway, uh, we'll take a break here. We're talking with Brian Steed, who is Great Salt Lake Commissioner. We're talking about the Great Salt Lake Data and Insights Summary. Um, and we'll have a, a brief uh, final segment following this. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're talking about a report prepared for the 2024 Utah Legislature. This is started last year. They'll report. They'll prepare this every year. Uh, the Great Salt Lake Strike Team uh, prepares the Great Salt Lake Data and Insights Summary. We've been talking about that with Great Salt Lake Commissioner and uh, co-chair of the Great Salt Lake Strike Team, Brian Steed. He's also executive director of the USU Janet Quinney Lawson Institute of Land, Water, and Air. Uh, so, Brian Steed, uh, before we close, and this last segment will be kind of brief, I, I definitely want to have you talk about agriculture. If you did the pie chart of uh, the uses of water, ag is the, the biggest one, right? It absolutely is. And, and we would expect that, right? That uh, We have set up a water right system that's first in time, first in right, and ag was was here first, and candidly, all of us came from an ag background at some point. What I don't care how far back you go in your your lineage, you're going to find somebody that that was in agriculture. For me, it goes back to both sets of grandparents on either side were both yeah. from from a farm background. My dad grew up on a farm, so it's it's something that uh, I think that we just have to be mindful of. And and in many parts of the state, it's still a really important part of the watershed. I mean, or, or sorry, a really important part of the economy, and and therefore. Uh, has to be considered as part of the watershed as well. Uh, interestingly, on the Great Salt Lake itself, when you look at the economic value of agriculture, um, I've read studies recently that show you know it's a probably a two billion dollar industry per year uh, on on value add to the state, and that's nothing to sneeze at. That's a pretty substantial chunk of change. So, it's something. That being said. As you mentioned, Tom, they do use uh, the majority of the water, and as, as such, they've got to be part of the solution on saving uh, the Great Salt Lake. So we're working very closely with agricultural producers. As I mentioned in the previous segment, uh, one of the things we focused on is agricultural optimization uh, and making sure that people are using the most effective uh, water watering systems for their for their irrigation. 
Uh, and then we're also looking to expand that um, and potentially looking at what we call split season or even seasonal leases of water. Uh, split season, uh, one of the things we're advocating is say, hey, if you grow alfalfa and you have four cuts per year, you know, water for your first two cuts, and then we'll pay you not to water your last two cuts. You might still get a third or fourth cut, but, oh, you just don't apply the water there, and then we shepherd that water to the Great Salt Lake. Similarly, uh, on rotational crops or on others, we could pay you take a year off uh, on a seasonal lease uh, and make sure that we then apply that water. One of the things we are trying very hard to avoid, though, is this notion of buying and drying. That's been applied in a lot of other areas. And it has a lot of negative consequences for local economies. I mean, there's a, a recent uh, study done by colleagues here at Utah State from from applied economics that show that when people did that in the Imperial Irrigation District of California, there was dust effects, there was local economic effects, there was a bunch of other things that, that ended up being negative consequences. So we really want to make sure that ag has uh, is using the water as as effectively and efficiently and making sure that we're able to get that saved water to the lake. Also to have them engage with us in a way that we can then get more water to the lake without putting ag out of business. Uh, just about a minute left. I'm wondering on this 30 year plan, the preferred plan from the strike team to get to 4198 in 30 years. Um, these measures that you're talking about, these kinds of measures for ag, is that sufficient or do we need something more draconian? No, I think that a combined effort between agriculture and uh, and municipal and industrial conservation, both of which can, can get us where we need to be. And this is, I think, a really important point. I mean, when I go out and about and talk to people on the Great Salt Lake, there's this parlor game of blaming someone else. It's ag's fault or it's municipal industrial fault. And in truth, Tom, it's all of our fault. And that means that all of us get to be part of the solution as well. And so, yes, it's enough. If we if we conserve municipal and industrial as well as conserving on the agriculture setting, we can find that additional water that we need to deliver to the lake. I'm apt to, apt to, absolutely optimistic that we can get there. Uh, it's going to be a challenge. Uh, there's going to be trade-offs that are involved. But we can get there. And that gives me a great deal of hope in my job. Good place to end the program. We are uh, at the end of the, at the time. Our guest has been the Great Salt Lake Commissioner, uh, Brian Steed. He's also co-chair of the Great Salt Lake Strike Team and executive director of the USU Janet Quinney Lawson Institute of Land, Water, and uh, Air. And this uh, Great Salt Lake Data and Insights Summary that we've been talking about, you can we've got a link here on our website, upr.org, or we'll have that up, and you can link directly over to that report. Brian Steed, always a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. We'll go out as we do on Wednesdays with uh, Beehive Archive. Thanks, everybody. Coverage of the 2024 Utah session of the Utah Legislature comes from AARP, a nonpartisan organization that helps Utahns live their best lives through programs and advocacy work. For more information on volunteering, newsletters, and email alerts, visit aarp.org slash get involved. And Planned Parenthood Association of Utah offering health care at eight health centers across the state, including Logan at 550 North Main and Ogden at 434 East 5350 South Washington Terrace, along with education for Utahns of all ages. Information at ppau.org. Thank you.